Hey, welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I'm your host. Uh, here on Foolproof Theology, we like to talk about uh, weighty, rich, uh, deep, strong theological issues, just like I enjoy uh, my bourbon. And I'm really excited. Uh, I, I would be uh, hard-pressed to overstate my excitement about our guest today, Dr. Doug Groteis from Denver Seminary. He's the uh, professor of philosophy down at Denver Seminary. Uh, my professor in seminary for for multiple classes. Um, he's written extensively on Christian apologetics, apologetic method, uh, but not just that. Um, he's not someone who just lives in an ivory tower. Uh, he's been somebody who's deeply engaged uh, in the writings on suffering, and uh, and I think you you wrote a book called uh, "The Philosopher's Lament" or uh, "The Lament of a Philosopher," something like that, about suffering and grief. Well, I wrote a book called Walking Through Twilight, A Wife's Illness, right. A Philosopher's Lament. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, and that's available on Amazon, right? It is. Uh, great, great book. And and really, that's what I appreciate about uh, Dr. Grotice's. Um, very, uh, very authentic, as the youth say, or very uh, just personable and rel- relational. Um, it's not just an intellectual thing for for Doug. It's a it's a relational thing, and how we can all love God better together. Uh, Doug is married to Kathleen, and they live in Denver. They have a dog named Sonny, who I think may make an appearance at some point, may come in and join us sometime on this podcast. But uh, Doug, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm happy to be here, Chase. Thank you. Um, one of the things I wanted to start off with is kind of learning uh, more about your story. I wanted to share a bit about my story, my interaction. I came into your class when I was 24. I had just planted a church, started planting a church about the same semester I came into your class, and uh, it rocked my world. Um, I came in flirting with a bunch of uh, ideas about Christianity that that uh, I now know are unorthodox. Um and uh, you know, studying Rob Bell and 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 checking these other things out, and got in your class, and I remember you throwing uh throwing the book Blue Light Jazz across the room at one point, and and this was uh shocking in a way that really was helpful for me. It was like, oh wow, this is this matters, you know, we can't just flirt uh, with these things. So you really, I I like to tell people at my church and my wife and my friends that you put me back on the straight and narrow in terms of uh, following Christianity and and caring about truth. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for that right off the bat, because your class has really helped shape my mind, my ministry, um, and uh, and really get back to biblical truth. So uh, that's part of the reason I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, I, as I mentioned, one of the things I wanted to know more about, and I realized for you it's been uh, a while ago, but you got your PhD from the University of Oregon. Is that right? Yes, University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon. I got that in 1993. Okay. And that was that in philosophy? Yes, philosophy. So and, as a Christian, um, go ahead. Yeah, I emphasize philosophy of religion. And uh, I wrote my dissertation on a philosopher named Blaise Pascal, who has been very significant to me for like 43 years or something like that. Sure. Uh, I first read Pascal, I think, in the summer of 1977. And I've been interacting with him writing about him, teaching about him, using him in apologetics ever since. That's awesome. Why Why do you think Blaise Pascal is so relevant, important? What What is the impact mm-hmm. he's made on your life, and why should people listening to this podcast maybe check him out? Right. Well, he really understood the human condition. He was a masterful stylist. He knew how to craft a metaphor. He was somebody who speaks to the whole person, not just to the intellect but to the intuition, to the emotions, to the imagination. And he never finished his book on apologetics. He just left Hmm. us hundreds of fragments. So you can buy a collection of these fragments called Pensees, which is French for thoughts. Some of the fragments are fairly long and are short arguments. Some of them are very short. So you have to cobble this together and try to understand what he was attempting to do. And even though he never finished this work, a systematic account of apologetics, what he left us is of great value. In fact, I wrote a little book about 20 years ago called On Pascal, uh, which went out of print, but I'm hoping to revise that and put out an expanded version with InterVarsity Press within a couple of years, I hope. That would be awesome. I look forward to that. As far as your dissertation, your work at uh, University of Oregon, was there a certain 
uh, focus or a certain work of Pascal? Do you do you recall what it was that you were really trying to dig in there? Yes. Well, for dissertations, you have to do something new and something significant. So I tackled an issue which had not been addressed at length, which is why Pascal rejected arguments for God's existence. And he had four or five reasons, and I addressed all those. I disagreed with all those. So you might think, well, how can, how can an apologist reject arguments for God's existence or natural theology? <laughs> uh, it sounds kind of strange, but what he wanted to do was argue for Christianity as a whole. So he didn't want to just lay out a design argument or a cosmological argument and conclude that there was a designer or creator God. He wanted to present the Christian worldview, the Christian account of life as a whole. And really his strongest argument <clears throat> is something I call the anthropological argument, which I've written about and given many times in the last 40 or more years. And that is that Christianity uniquely accounts for who we are as human beings. That is, we are great by virtue of being made in God's image and likeness. And we're also what he called wretched because of sin and mm -hmm. the fall. And he thought that only Christianity understood our greatness and our wretchedness. Mm -hmm. All other worldviews either emphasize the greatness at the expense of the wretchedness or the wretchedness at the expense of the greatness. So he gave a powerful argument for that. He's also famous for the wager, Pascal's wager, which has been falsely pilloried and rejected. Uh, I think it's a very wise strategy. What it comes down to is Christianity is not just another belief out there. Mm -hmm. Everything rides on whether Christ was the way, the truth, and the life or not. It's a matter of eternal life or the loss of eternal life. So someone should ardently pursue the truth of Christianity, because if it's true, you ultimately have everything to gain and nothing of ultimate value to lose. And if it's true and you don't believe it, then you lose everything that's worth having. That's a very small nutshell of Pascal's wager. It's often uh, misinterpreted and rejected as a straw man. Mm. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that with me. And I know yeah. there's plenty to kind of dive into there. Have you written on uh, that anthropological argument in uh, Christian apologetics? I have, certainly. I've got a chapter on that in my big apologetics book, uh, which is entitled, not very jazzy, Christian Apologetics. That's right. That's <laughs> I've right. I've got a chapter in there called Deposed Royalty. For a jazz guy, you think I could come up for a better title than that, right? <laughs> it's a tech book, so. Sure. Yeah, that book is uh, fantastic. I wish every Christian would pick it up. I know you uh, you practice some self-deprecation and calling it a doorstop, but it's been uh, been really helpful for me um, in my journey. Just a great summation of, uh, of your thinking on uh, how to engage apologetics. Uh, one of the things you mentioned jazz, one of the things that I, uh, I was really enjoy, I really enjoyed when I took your class and multiple classes was the way that you appreciated the arts and culture and cultural engagement. I know you, you appreciate the works of Francis Schaeffer and, and his thinking on cultural engagement. But I remember one of your classes, uh, you began by uh, turning off the lights, starting a Metallica song, you left the room, <laughs> And then once the intro culminated to a certain point, you ran in with your arms in the air. And I just thought that was fantastic. That's that's honestly how I would prefer uh, to lead and teach. And I'd never seen a teacher do anything of that nature. Um, and, and uh, you know, that was humorous and fun and a playful way to start the class. Definitely engaging. Um, but it kind of got to some of your convictions and beliefs and something that came up often and comes up often in your thinking. Um, is this kind of redeemability of the arts? And so the question that comes to my mind and that I think you've you've postulated before is like with someone like Jimi Hendrix or Metallica, with these musicians that, um, I mean, by all accounts, we wouldn't call them Christian. Um, is there an idea that we will enjoy that kind of music in the new heavens and new earth? That's a big question. And I think... Uh... When you took my class, I was a little bit more theatrical than I am now as I have white hair and my beard. <laughs> but uh, I think that God is a giver of every good and perfect gift, as James 1 says. So there is this idea in theology called common grace that God gives 
gifts and shows his goodness to the believers and the unbelievers. Jesus says he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So he gives the goodness of rain to those who believe in him and those who don't. Mm. So because we're made in God's image, we have certain creative abilities that are unique to our kind. And we can find beauty uh, in the works of a overt Christian meaning in non-Christian musicians, poets, and so on. And I've been very influenced by the work of Richard Mao on this. He has a book called When the Kings Come Marching In. And from some passages in Revelation and Isaiah, and from some deep theological themes and influences from Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bobink and so on, he believes that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will appreciate and enjoy whatever has been good in the history of human culture, whether that is a painting by a Christian or whether it's a painting by a non-Christian or whether it's a, maybe a, uh, my example, uh, John Coltrane piece of music or a piece of music by a wonderful sacred choir. Mm. And I think there's something to that because God doesn't waste anything in history and God is the source of the good, the true, and the beautiful. You could say he is the good, the true, and the beautiful. Ultimately, trace it back to God. And I think we'll be, in some sense, conserved. Now, there are particular Metallica tunes that will not be, I'm sure, in the new heavens and the new earth. I think they'll be in hell, actually. But the point is that you can find goodness to be appreciated uh, far and wide, mm. all, the, all the while realizing that everything has been affected by sin. So, you know, let's go to, to Jimi Hendrix. His basic worldview, I think, was Gnostic, probably, and Gnosticism is a false worldview. But some of his song structures and his guitar playing and his innovation with electronics, I think, are quite ingenious, and there's no reason not to enjoy that. Perhaps we could enjoy some of that even uh, in the world to come. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a really different view that I had coming in uh, to ministry and to uh, kind of theological thinking, because I grew up in kind of this uh, evangelical soul culture where uh, music that wasn't explicitly Christian, however you want to define Christian, uh, should be not listened to, not enjoyed, not appreciated. It conflicted with me and my dad only because my dad was constantly trying to uh, educate me on uh, Jimi Hendrix, Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, Talking Heads, whatever it may be. Um, but all the while we were part of uh, churches and and kind of movements that were like, you can't listen to that stuff. Um, and so I, I found that to really be a beautiful uh, way to view uh, God's lordship and and uh, and rulership over all all things. And as you said, nothing will go to waste. I think that's an awesome way to, uh, to right. view it. One thing I want to add to that quickly is that we have to consider someone's Christian maturity. So before I became a Christian, I really had Jimi Hendrix as an idol. I became a Christian when I was 19. So for many years, I rarely listened to Jimi Hendrix because it, it triggered uh, an old way of viewing the world. But but as I grew as a Christian, without being sucked into the, the false worldview and the Gnosticism and the hedonism, and I found that I could. So, you know, as Paul says, let all things be done for edification. So if you listen to uh, Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, and it reminds you of when you used to do uh, hallucinogenic drugs, and it's very unedifying, then don't listen to it. But if you can listen to it and just enjoy the music, it doesn't have those associations. It doesn't uh, pull you into the pagan vortex. Then uh, you could enjoy that, I think, and thank God for it. That's awesome. That's great. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to be had in that, and and kind of this uh, this idea that the New Testament constantly reinforces is we need to set our mind on things that are of God, um, things that are excellent and beautiful. Um, so I think that's right. a great wisdom piece for us. Philippians four, yeah. Yeah. Um, this kind of gets us into the topic of critical engagement uh, with culture. 
Um, there's two topics I, I really wanted to pick your brain on. And that's part of the reason I have this podcast is to really just uh, hear from a variety of people from a variety of perspectives. Um, one topic that recently came up, and, and it's really pertinent for our, uh, I don't know, culture, society, nation, Christians in particular, is the topic of the election. Um, you know, and, and I think you recently shared an op-ed from the Denver Post uh, where someone was sharing their thoughts on why they felt it to be a good thing uh, to cast their vote for Donald Trump. And, and you decided to chime in, share that on Facebook uh, yourself. Um, one of the things, uh, there's kind of two questions. I want to uh, address them in this order. The first question I have is this. I hear a lot of Christians uh, will, will be, I think, rightly dismayed at some of the mannerisms and behaviors of our current president. Um, but his, the objections typically follow this. His character seems to be disqualifying for many Christians and that Christians voting for him hurt our witness in the broader culture. Um, this this was recently uh, put forward in, in a debate that uh, David French had with a with another guy, Eric Metaxas. But I wanted to get your kind of take on uh, those two objections that somehow Donald Trump's President Trump's character disqualifies him from the office of presidency and that evangelicals voting for him hurt our own cause. Those are very good points. And I actually want to start a step before that. And that is That's that fine. politics is downstream from culture and culture is formed by people's basic worldview, their moral sentiments, their imagination, their belief system. So what we're seeing right now, especially at the presidential level, is a very bad choice. And the choice we have of the two electable candidates is a result of political culture, which is a result of the larger culture. And it shows a real lack of integrity and a lack of thoughtfulness regarding political philosophy and political engagement. So I take it to be an absolutely terrible choice. So the choice that voters have is to either sit out, not vote for anyone for president, if they don't like either candidate, or to vote for a third party as a kind of protest vote and maybe think, well, maybe in years and decades, we can develop a third party that will be a better alternative or uh, to kind of hold your nose and vote for one of the two electable candidates. And back to the character question, uh, I am not a big Donald Trump supporter. I'm not Donald Trump right or wrong. In fact, it was only the last couple months I decided I needed to vote for him. Uh, and it's really because of the party platforms, the Democratic and Republican party platforms are vastly different on a whole host of very important issues, especially abortion. Uh, the Democratic platform and Joe Biden uh, would allow abortion at any time for any reason and have the taxpayers pay for it. And that's simply an abomination. And we've had 62 million unborn human beings legally killed since Roe v. Wade. And we need to do everything we can to roll that back. So I'm not deceiving myself. <clears throat> Donald Trump is a selfish, obnoxious, pugnacious person who is not a role model for anybody. Mm. But on some of the major issues, I side more with him, very much more with him than I do, I do with his opponent. So the way I've tried to cast it, and the, way, and the reason I put Krista Kafer's editorial on Facebook is that she lays this all out. And she says, you can be reluctantly supportive of Donald Trump because of the alternative, you don't endorse his character. You don't think he's some kind of a savior of the American Republic. But given that we have trade-offs in all of life, and given that politics is the art of the possible, then we may have to make some hard choices on this. Yeah. So uh, three or four months ago, I think I was, I was going to vote for a third party or not vote. And after I watched portions of the Democratic convention and portions of the Republican convention uh, and some persuasion from a significant other uh, who's not my dog. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I very reluctantly decided that I needed to vote for Donald Trump. But 
personally as a philosopher, someone who prizes good arguments and propriety and sound rhetoric, I mean, sound rhetoric, I can't watch the man for more than 10 or 15 minutes. I, I have to run out of the room screaming. Sure. Yeah, it can be hard uh, to put up with for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I have uh, that I didn't include kind of in our pre-conversation, and this is just for me personally, as I've been weighing this, I think that for our society, voting is kind of viewed almost as a sacrament in this secular mm -hmm. worldview. Um, that That's really bothersome to me when there's kind of this moral uh, urging that your vote uh, has uh, kind of the sacramental value. Um, and so I kind of find myself uh, fighting against that by almost downplaying my vote. I was talking with my wife about this the other night where it's like, I don't know that when I stand before God, uh, face unveiled, so to speak, that um, he's going to look at the ballot I fill out uh, here in Colorado. We can just fill it out at home. Um, and he's going to go, you know, that was that was evil that you filled out the ballot for that person. Um, I'd, so the reason I'm bringing this up is I'd love to hear from you as someone who thinks about ethics and morals. Um, how should we consider as Christians the moral significance of filling out a ballot, of, of voting at all? Yeah. That's an excellent question. And I wrote on that a bit in a previous election because I supported uh, Mitt Romney for president. And a lot of Christians said, how could you possibly vote for a Mormon? You know, a heretic, someone who comes out of a, a non-Christian group, you know, they might say a cult. And so I would not, uh, I, I would not call Mormonism a cult. I don't think that word is helpful. Um, is it unorthodox and actually heretical with respect to the doctrine of God and salvation? It is, of course. But in terms of civil conversation and engaging people. I don't like to use that particular word, especially in some cases. But that got me thinking about, you have to excuse me as a philosopher, the metaphysics of a vote. You know, what, what actually is a vote? And you've rightly said, it's not a sacrament. Going into the voter's booth or filling out your ballot is not like taking the Eucharist. So uh, I think we have to go back one step and say, what does it mean to be a godly citizen. We're a citizen of heaven first. We're also a citizen of earth. And Jeremiah tells the exiles that they should seek the welfare of the city to which they are exiled. So we want to contribute to the common good. And often the common good is not as good as we would like. So we have to make some hard choices in voting. But a vote is not voting, let's say for president, is not voting for the pastor in chief it's not voting for babysitter-in-chief, it's commander-in-chief. So you have to consider the trade-offs, and a vote is not an absolute endorsement of a human being. A vote simply says, I want this person over that person for these reasons. That's what a vote means. And some people who are listening may not like this, but I did it four years ago, too. If you don't know the issues or you haven't studied the issues, then don't vote. We need an a informed electorate. And simply voting on the basis of images or mere emotions untethered from reason and evidence is not a good idea. And my wife and I yesterday sat down with the ballot and talked over the issues. And there were a few things I didn't understand. I had not studied very much, a few ballot measures. I think there was one or two. And I didn't vote on those things. And I didn't know a few issues about whether to uh, reelect some judges. So I didn't vote on that. Hmm. But Kathleen and I sat down and talked it over. And I think we disagreed on one of the, the ballot measures. But a vote is significant. It is a privilege to be able to vote. It's a right that certain people have, that citizens have. So as they say, we should exercise the franchise and we just celebrated now 100 years uh, since women were allowed to vote in the United States. It kind of boggles the mid years. So voting is part of the political process, but there's a whole lot more to being a godly citizen than voting. Obviously, there's mm. your local culture. Um, there's being a good citizen in terms of uh, civic opportunities in your neighborhood 
pray, of course, First Timothy 2, many other passages. Pray for those leaders. Uh, there's also, as Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God. So whether we like it or not, we should pay our taxes and uh, not cheat on our tax forms. And there's so many things. So, you know, the metaphysics of a vote, not a sacrament, significant, not the end all be all of politics, but it simply means I prefer this candidate over another candidate as the best. And we sometimes talk about the lesser of two evils. There's also the evil of two lessers. So mm -hmm. we have to work for, if we can, for better candidates in some cases, especially at the presidential level. Good night. Right. Well, that's a great word. Thank you for sharing that uh, metaphysics of voting. That helps me <laughs> kind of sort it out. Um, one of the things that I've seen come up, and at least I'm a millennial, um, a lot of my friends are very disenchanted either because of they grew up with this religious right establishment that just seemed to crave power, or they view Donald Trump as, like you mentioned, obnoxious. Um, and so there's this kind of push within at least tribes I run in um, for kind of this both and where, you know, we can be uh, pro-life for all of life. And, and the argument goes is like, hey, like the Republicans really haven't done much uh, for uh, reducing um, abortion access federally, uh, nationally. And so kind of uh, believing that aligning yourself with them on the topic of abortion seems like a fool's errand and therefore it frees us to vote kind of for more broader issues in society. What do you make of that, that idea? Yeah. Well, that's been around for a long time. Back in the early eighties, uh, Ronald Sider wrote a book called completely pro-life and he's very left of center. And he made this argument too, that you need to be pro-life on all issues, not just on abortion. So there you have to think through your political philosophy and what is best for the culture, the nation as a whole. And I would never call myself right wing, although I would call myself a principled conservative. So I, I don't lean towards the liberal policies on very many things at all. the least, the last, and the lost, including the unborn, then what kind of policies are best for uh, immigrants, for poor people, for the unborn, for the disabled? And you're not going to find the perfect policy. We're not going to find utopia mm. on this earth. So you have to try to cut your losses and emphasize strengths. And when it comes to this, this issue of abortion, it's actually fairly clear cut because a president uh, nominates Supreme Court justices and they make decisions regarding abortion. We're seeing that now with the Amy uh, Barrett situation. Uh, people are very fearful that she will rule in a case against Roe versus Wade. And uh, she very well might because she's an originalist in her philosophy of interpretation. And I don't find any right to privacy in the constitution which was the basis of the 1973 Roe v. Wade policy. So I don't think that the party that allows for abortion up until birth is the party I'm going to vote for. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, a, a culture that allows infanticide is a culture under God's judgment. And that's actually what we have now. So, uh, there was something that came to the Senate that would have disallowed or would have required abortions that resulted in a live birth. It would have required the attending physicians and medical people to take care of the baby. That failed the Senate. Kamala Harris voted against it. Um, Joe Biden was not in the Senate, but uh, he would be against it as well. So yes, we need to look at the whole picture and what kind of situations engender unwanted pregnancies and think about that certainly. But a president and judges and governors have a very significant human life from the top down. And then whatever the top down is, from the bottom up, the church should be teaching and preaching and living out a pro-life ethic to help women who have unplanned pregnancies, to teach biblical 
ethics on sexuality, that we should be responsible as sexual beings and limit sexual intimacy to marriage and honor unborn human life. So you want to work from the top down and from the bottom up on this issue, as well as all the other issues, as well as uh, being kind and compassionate and fair with uh, those who are here as immigrants who did not come in in a legal manner. How could we be redemptive in that situation? So it's a big issue, but I'm an old guy. I'm 63. I, I know I only look about 61, but I was at I was there when the new right was just getting started in, back in the late 70s. So I've seen the weaknesses in the right. And for 40 years as an evangelical Christian, and uh, I'm not all that happy with either party in a lot of ways. In fact, I became an independent about two years ago. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. But um, the pro-life issue is so significant that we should never push it into the background. But that doesn't mean we have to become ideological uh, cheerleaders for the Republican Party or for Donald Trump. I'm not. I'm not at all. So in some cases, again, it's the lesser of two evils, or let's just try to cut our losses and do the best we can and try to be a redemptive presence in our culture, whatever political party we belong to, or we don't belong to any, as I don't belong to any. Right. Now, I think that's very uh, wise and charitable because, you know, ultimately we want to be able to dwell in Christian unity under the Lordship of Christ, who is our our Savior, our Ruler, our King, Lord of the Universe, and be able to land on different economic principles in ways that we may, you know, disagree with people, um, and and even and disagree in how they vote, but we dwell under the Lordship of Christ. And so this this idea that our culture is pushing us to sacramentally align ourselves by voting with somebody um, who's our Savior, our great defender, or something like that, is a fool's errand, and uh, mm-hmm. and is unhelpful for for unity in the church. It is one of the things that's come up to the forefront in our society. And I was just watching a video from uh, from, I think, the Claremont Institute this morning. Um, there seems to be a great worldview divide between the the two parties that that seem to be uh, most prominent on the ballot. Uh, there's actually a lot more options on our ballots uh, than just two parties. Um, but one of the issues that's come up both in society and in the church, particularly, is the idea of critical theory. Um, we all witnessed this summer kind of this really great cry um, from from the black community and from a lot of segments of the population that there needs to be more work on justice in, in America and uh, they've been unheard and things have not been attended to properly. Uh, and so one of the ways that some people um, have really been processing this seems to be through the lens of critical theory, critical race theory. Um, that's not not to say that anyone who's about justice or, or fighting injustice in no way would we say that they're they're automatically in with a critical theory or down with it. But you recently released an article with the Centennial Institute where you talked about critical theory. Um, for our listeners, um, you know, what is, if you had to summarize critical theory, critical race theory, what is it and why should we be concerned about it? Well, it's a good question because a lot of people that are caught up in the protest and in the concerns about racial justice are influenced by this philosophy without necessarily knowing about it. So I hope that people who are watching and listening to this will go to that article because I go into more detail. But basically it is a form of what's called cultural Marxism. And Marxism, uh, you know, in a nutshell is basically the idea that it's us versus them. It's those that have money and property versus those that don't. And there's this ongoing struggle, class struggle, where the, the workers, the proletariat, need to eventually just revolt against the, the owners. Now, critical race theory applies that more to race and gender and not so much to class. So the struggle is between those, uh, in our case, white males against those who don't have the power, namely women and, and uh, those in racial minorities, uh, those in 
sexual preference uh, or sexual orientation minorities. So it's really an us versus them, the powerful versus the powerless kind of perspective. Now, biblically, there's a lot, especially in the prophets. I mean, think of Amos about the rich oppressing the poor. That happens. And those that have power, economic, cultural, political, can often use that power wrongly. So Christians need to consider this. And I like uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, in his concerns, although he doesn't talk about abortion in that book, which boggles my mind. But anyway, he goes to the prophets in the biblical sense, uh, various senses of justice. And one of them is to rectify wrongs. Another one is to support uh, the downtrodden so they're not exploited or su support the social system such that it doesn't become exploitative. Um, there's just so much to say here, but my main concern is about knowledge and truth because there's something to critical theory that is called standpoint epistemology. And the idea, it goes back to Marxism. The old Marxists would say only the oppressed understand the social situation and what needs to be done. So they have a unique vantage point to understand how history is unfolding and what the social situation is. The capitalists, the owners, are corrupted by something called false consciousness. Their view is ideologically tainted because of their power relation to the powerless or the less powerful. Now that's shifted to those who are oppressed, namely racial groups and uh, gay, lesbians, transgender people. Uh, those who are oppressed understand the situation and those who are the oppressors cannot possibly understand the situation. It's called standpoint epistemology. So this is simply a bad approach. Now, honoring everybody's lived experience is significant, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a street person. What is your lived experience? People sure. are you know, made in the image and likeness of God. They should be heard. They should be treated with respect. Everyone should be. But knowledge is justified true belief. Knowledge is not what is really meaningful to me. My experience could, in fact, be wrong. You know, I could think that I'm being discriminated against because I'm black or because I'm gay. And in fact, I'm not. I mean, I could make a mistake on that. Oppressed people can make mistakes. People that have power that can make can make mistakes. So that really concerns me because it breaks down the possibility of discussion and dialogue mm. because the oppressors have nothing to say. Mm. And in many of these protests and riots that we're seeing, the idea is uh, if you're white or male or Christian, then shut up and get out of the way. You have nothing to say to us, period. And that's certainly wrong. So we have to talk about a philosophy that will allow for critical thinking. Critical theory is not about critical thinking. It's very uh, ideological. It's, it's very us and them. And moreover, just economically, I have a lot of concerns about this because uh, simply because one group doesn't have as high of an income as another group doesn't mean the cause of that is necessarily systematic racism. There are all kinds of other factors that need to be addressed. Uh, people like Thomas Sowell, the black economist, has been writing about this for 60 years. And then you have activists so like Candace Owens, who's an African-American woman, who says we've got to look at other issues in the black community besides racial discrimination. We have to look at uh, lack of fathers in the homes. And this is a, a problem, has been a problem for many years. Uh, in the African-American community, breakdown of the family. So those are some of my concerns. I go into them in more detail in the essay. But as someone who um, really came into the Christian intellectual world in the Cold War, I did a lot of study of Marxism. And then I see this as kind of an extension, a cultural Marxism, and some people say, well, you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater and just throwing out that word Marxism as if it meant uh, uh, Satanist. Well, mm. 
you know, Marxism is not just a flawed worldview and a bad economic theory. It's a philosophy that is responsible for the death of about 100 million civilians in the 20th century, the hands of the Soviet Union and Mao Zedong in China and Pol Pot in Cambodia. It is a very repressive authoritarian worldview, political philosophy. It's utterly incompatible with the ideals of the American founding in terms of the value of the individual uh, government being the consent based on the consent of the governed. And in that Centennial Institute piece, which is called America, Critical Theory and Social Crisis, I don't so much give a full-fledged Christian critique of critical theory. I do some of that, but it's more how are the founding ideas and ideals of America different from critical theory, critical race theory, and they're quite different. We do not need to dismantle the American system to work for more justice and a more equitable system. We actually have to be truer to them. And we have to look at areas where we we ought to repent. And that's that's just one other thing, if I can bring it up. Sure. In critical race theory, there's no possibility of repentance because the oppressors are corrupt through and through by virtue of their group. And the oppressed are virtuous basically through and through. And the oppressed dictate to the oppressors what must be. So there's no dialogue. There's no argument in terms of rational discourse. And moreover, there's really no possibility for repentance because people can't change their gender. They can't change their skin color. They can't change certain givens of their character. Whereas biblically, you can turn, you can experience metanoia, radical change of mind and turn from your sin, your selfishness, your bigotry, your prejudice, whatever it is, racism, sexism, classism. You find that in yourself and you should inspect yourself, examine yourself, you can turn away from it and you can find atonement through the work of Jesus Christ for redemption. I think our society is trying to atone for sin or perceive sin without Christ, which is ugly. It means tearing things down, destroying things, uh, demonizing people, uh, not forgiving people, not offering people a chance. But reconciliation starts ultimately with Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man, who paid our debt and took our penalty and offers freedom of forgiveness and life. So, you know, when a society tries to atone for its own sins and redeem itself, apart from the character of God, it's going to look pretty terrible. And that's really the way it looks now in many quarters of our culture, sadly. For sure. Yeah. And this, uh, this topic is significant. I, I think you and I have both read uh, Cynical Theories uh, by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, uh, which yeah. really helps uh, kind of summarize how, you know, it's, it almost seems uh, inconsistent philosophically when some Christians or, or people will attach themselves to kind of critical race theory and they'll, they'll select that piece of the puzzle but that piece of the puzzle is connected to the larger framework that has to do with post-colonial studies, gender studies, um, uh, fat studies, all these kind of things. And it's like, I, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to find a helpful way to discourse and to talk about current events. Um, my, my concern has just been like, we, we have a Bible that, that actually is intended to help us. And I think for most of us, we're just biblically illiterate. And that's why we're, we're selecting frameworks that really contradict Christianity in a lot of key ways. Yeah. Well, I think what Paul said in Colossians 2, he said, don't be taken captive by hollow and that depends on the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So you can find elements of truth in non-Christian philosophies and political theory, but you need to have a very well-integrated, solid biblical worldview in order to find uh, the gems in the mud, so to speak. And then also we need to have sources that are credible for our knowledge about race and about economics. And while, as we need to listen to people's lived experience, 
that's not enough to work for real justice in society. We have to look at sociological trends, economic realities, political policies and their effects, and someone just holding up a sign doesn't do that. So I recommend people uh, read writers like Thomas Sowell and uh, Walter Williams. And although they're secular, uh, the authors of that book, Cynical Theory, make some very strong lights and show just how extreme and how bizarre uh, some people take critical theory into, into these areas, as you mentioned, of uh, post-colonial studies and uh, various other areas, racial theories and so on. And those people really don't have the answer. They are secular liberals in the sense of classic liberalism, individual rights, freedom of speech, consider people as individuals, not members of groups, but they ultimately have no foundation or no basis for valuing the individual because they're atheists. If you're an atheist, humans just appeared for no reason and we try to get along with each other. You can't appeal to fundamental human rights based on human dignity based, uh, because we're made in the image and likeness of God. You can't appeal to scriptural insights about the deep love that God can bring through Christ and the Holy Spirit. So they're good as critics, but they're, and even their criticism is not based on a sufficient worldview to make the kind of moral judgments that they make. That's a good point. Um, one of the ways that I see Christians trying to use uh, kind of these frameworks, um, and, and obviously if you know, Christians want to talk about white privilege. We can talk about that. We can talk about these various issues. We can talk about systemic racism. The We can have a rational dialogue about uh, to what degree or if that's true. Um, one of the ways I've seen it described by both denominational leaders and Christians is that critical race theory is helpful for describing how we got to where we are, but it's not good prescriptively for giving us a way forward. Um, I personally find that argument not compelling because I don't view it as a helpful way to describe how we are or how we got where we are. Um, but I was just wondering what you you make of that sentiment that somehow critical race theory gives us uh, unique insights into how we arrived at our current situation. No, I don't think so, really, because as I mentioned, critical race theory analyzes in terms of group membership and it makes a lot of false generalizations on that basis does it stumble upon certain truths does it raise issues that are significant certainly i mean let's consider this idea of intersectionality if someone is at once african-american a woman and transgender they'll pro well yeah transgender are they a woman but i think you know what i'm saying Let's say they're they're black, a woman, and they transition to being a man, as they understand it. Well, that kind of person is going to suffer some challenges and concerns that other people like me, a white male, probably won't. So as a Christian who should have compassion, I should be aware of that. Whether or not I support um, the transgender approach to things, I should respect that person is made in the image and likeness of God. And that person should not be treated in a big way. A uh, Latina woman, lesbian, who is a full professor at a California university. And compare her to uh, the unknown philosopher who's speaking right now, who's white male and a philosopher <laughs> and a Christian. I dare say she probably has more cultural influence and makes a whole lot more money than I do. So I think these, these categories are helpful. People do discriminate wrongly on the basis of sex and race and religion. It happens. It's a fallen world. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and, and wicked above all things. Who can understand it? But to view everything through that prism of, of race, gender, class, etc., just misses too much. It's mm. kind of a reductionism. 
and a bill account of human condition. First of all, we all have something in common. You know, go back to the children's song, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. We're precious in God's sight. We're made in the image of God. We can all unite at the foot of the cross and find redemption through the blood of Christ. Uh, we can all be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can all read the same Bible. In America, we have citizenship in common. We have rights and responsibilities in common. So what we're seeing played out in the streets, often violently, is the result of a breakdown of communication and a breakdown of common decency. And the signs, the slogans, the bombs, the guns are not the answer by any means. The answer is, I think, nationally coming back to the basic principles of the American founding and doing that hard work mm. in terms of elections, uh, in terms of changing social policies, of seeing the church rise up and be a force for compassion and goodness and justice and seeing Christian communities stand against false philosophies and against racism and against sexism and against classism where in Christ there's neither male nor female, slave nor free. Uh, we're one in Christ and we share and we love other, we pray for each other, we reach out to the outcast, to the orphans, to the widows, try to protect the unborn. We want everyone to be treated with decency and respect, whether they're gay or straight or bi or trans or anything else. At the same time, we want to hold to biblical ethics where we, we can't endorse every lifestyle, but we can love every life. Mm. That's a good word. Um, kind of the last question I have um, as it pertains to both of these issues, uh, political engagement and critical race theory, um, that some of my fellow pastors I've heard are approaching it in this way, that basically society is coming apart, that there's widespread disintegration of common values, shared vision for the future. Um, and rather than get involved, their attitude is we will stand back and the church will still be here, which is true. Uh, and we'll just kind of let it, let it go. Uh, and, and I personally find that disheartening. Uh, but what do you, what do you make of that, that idea that uh, it would be better uh, to stand back and just let things happen and, and represent Christ faithfully and let the church last than to get involved in dialogue about these issues and, and try to defend mm. America because uh, some people view it as compromised. Oh, that's a big issue. And <clears throat> I have to encourage everyone listening and watching this to read the work of Osmanis. I think he's our greatest Christian social critic. And uh, his most or one of his most recent books is called Last Call for Liberty. And Oz speaks as a very eloquent Christian, an Englishman, who's actually born in China. He's not an American citizen, but he believes America has a unique and significant role in the world. And that the deepest American principles should be conserved, but we're in danger of losing them. Now, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He didn't say the gates of hell will not prevail against America or the Roman Empire. Right. So Christians belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Every other kingdom can and will be shaken. Nevertheless, we are citizens of our nation. And Acts 17 says that God puts people where he wants them to be. So if you're a Christian in America right now, you should seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah 29. Never compromising your citizenship in heaven. And realize that Christ is the Savior and the state is not the Savior. No politician is the Savior. So here I think of the recent books by Rob Dreher, The Benedict Option, which I highly recommend. And his new book, which I'm about two-thirds of the way through, called Live Not by Lies. And Rob Dreher, Rod Dreher is a conservative. He's not very optimistic about America. And he says, because America is falling apart at so many levels, those of religious convictions need to minister to one another so they don't lose their souls. So we need to not buy the lies of our culture. And that phrase, live not by lies, comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great dissident against the Soviet Union. So it's really a both and. Uh, we need, this may sound funny 
coming from an evangelical, but we need to be as religious as possible. <laughs> that is, we need to really get involved with the life of the church. Always attend services. Take communion frequently. Engage in spiritual disciplines. Go to prayer groups. Uh, really uh, embody what we believe is true about reality, because there's a counter to that out there. I mean, there are the the liturgies and the sacraments that are bogus, you know, that are counterfeit, that are out there in the world, whether it's in sports or entertainment or politics, there are counterfeit religiosities out there. So we need to just immerse ourselves in the truth of God with the people of God. And as we do that, we will actually become better, wiser citizens. So it's really a both and, but uh, we should be messianic about the Messiah, you know, not messianic mm. about America. Mm. America is not going to save the world. However, there is something unique and of unparalleled value about what is called the American experiment. American exceptionalism is not a political idea of the far right. It's simply a fact of history. America is unique in the nations, the history of the nations of the world, given mm. our founding. And to whom much is given, much is required. So we don't get a pass on God's judgment. Israel didn't get a pass on God's judgment when it sinned against the Lord, against Yahweh. And we don't either. So I think if we keep in mind that dual citizenship, and if we put our ultimate hopes, not in America, not in a political party, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we become better citizens and we become wiser people. And we can find a, a dimension of meaning and peace that you can't find if you hitch your enjoyment and you hitch your meaning to things that will fail you, like politics. Right. Uh, Christ will not ultimately fail us, but he will bring us through our own failures and the failures of our nation, and he'll bring us safely through to his eternal kingdom. Mm. Well, that's a great word and great encouragement to us. Um, yeah, this has been so enjoyable for me, so fun to dialogue with you, uh, someone who's, uh, you know, someone I, I admire, I look up to, I'm looking to help me think critically and, and Christianly during these times. Um, so I just wanted to thank you again for being on the podcast today. Um, if, if you wanted to share a recent work that you've written, I know you've been uh, editing a lot of your Christian apologetics book. Um, is there a place where somebody can go to find where, uh, where your books uh, are sold? Sure. You could go to my webpage. It's just douglasgrotheis.com. You'll find a blog, links to YouTube, links to my books, and all my books are on Amazon. Um, my major work is a book called Christian Apologetics. It's a textbook on apologetics. I'm working really hard right now to come out with a second edition that will even be bigger. I'm sure I'll have uh, some good arguments in my publisher about how many extra pages they'll give me. <laughs> but really, the book I'm reading right now that I take to be extremely significant for right now is that Rod Dreher book called Love Not Lies, because he goes back to the struggle of the Russians and the, yeah, the Russians and the Eastern Europeans as they resisted communism. And he says, a lot of people today don't know how evil communism was, and they don't know what it took to oppose it and to bring it down, at least with the Soviet empire. And so uh, it's like we have a generation that knows not Joseph, Joseph Stalin. And we need to know our history. Americans need to know their own history. We need to know something about the history of communism. And we need to live lives that are different. You know, in a sense, every Christian today should be a, a, a dissenter. You know, we should not go along with the worldly system. We should be very different. But we still have these contingent alignments and contingent support that we give groups because it seems wise politically. But you should never sell your soul to culture or to politics. Mm, that's a good word. Well, thank you so much for being on the uh, the podcast today. If you're listening and you enjoyed our content, I would encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or the YouTube channel. You can also rate it. I would appreciate that. Uh, rate our podcast. It gets the word out there. I love the content we produce. Hope you do too. Um, our next guest on the show will be uh, Christian Kim, who's a PhD student at TED's. 
and uh, he's going to be sharing on his experience as an Asian American. We'll talk about the model minority myth and what he's researching up there at TED. So until next time, we'll see you there. Thank you.